0: This is the Citizen of Heaven Podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number seven, dated May 21st in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about making plans. If you can plan for a family vacation or a comfy retirement, why not also plan to grow your faith? I've been reading Psalm 88, arguably the saddest chapter in the Bible. even though the psalm doesn't say so, there is a reason for your suffering. In fact, there may be several. I've been hearing Game of Thrones is done after eight seasons, and unlike some Christians, I actually think that's a good thing. I've been playing The Voyages of Marco Polo, and it makes me wonder whether superheroes ever get jealous of one another. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. We like making plans, don't we? And I don't mean in a violation of a James chapter 4 kind of thing. I don't mean making plans apart from the will of God. I, I mean looking forward to the future in a responsible way, trying to set ourselves up for success instead of setting ourselves up for failure. We realize that we are always under the will of God, that we should be saying, in words as often as possible, if the Lord wills, we will both live and and do such and such. And whether we say it or not, hopefully that's in our hearts. We realize that we are in very limited control of the future, but we do have some control. And there's nothing wrong in the world with exercising whatever control we do have. In fact, we should be doing that. It's a responsible thing. It's, It's called stewardship. And stewardship is a principle that Jesus dwells on extensively in his parables, and his other teaching, the things that we are given are given to us by God, including and particularly our time. And so, therefore, it's entirely appropriate for us to make plans, and not necessarily only in a spiritual way, but if we find it in our hearts and in our minds to make plans for our children's college or for our own retirement or for the summer vacation or whatever it happens to be that we're planning for in the flesh— Why in the world would we not plan for spiritual things? Because we are on a spiritual journey every bit as much as we are on a physical journey. And it's appropriate for us to set wheels in motion as much as we can. Again, we have limited control over this, but we have some control. To set wheels in motion so that we can progress along our spiritual journey and ultimately find ourselves in a place where God will be pleased with us, where we'll be found acceptable, where we'll be able to stand at judgment and hear the words, welcome, good and faithful servant or however it is that God chooses to, to arrange things on that day. It's appropriate for us then to make plans. Make them early, make them firm, and make them public. I want to talk about each one of these briefly here of this, uh, during this podcast. Making early plans, starting early, early in life, for instance. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1 tells us that we're supposed to remember the Lord in, our days, in the days of our youth. Teaching our children and having our children teach themselves and teach others their age that God is relevant at all stages of life, including and particularly our youth. There's going to come a time, Solomon says, when we we get jaded with our, with our view of life. We, we don't find any pleasure in our life. In our youth, we find nothing but pleasure, or at least we're trying to find nothing but pleasure. But while we are seeking these things, as he says at the end of chapter 11, leading into chapter 12, verse 1, while we're doing all these things, remember that we're going to be held accountable for these things. So while we're enjoying ourselves, find faith, make a plan to develop faith, to develop it in ourselves and to develop it in our children and in our grandchildren Children early in life. Uh, even early in the day, Jesus went to a secluded place and prayed early in the morning. We have a record of him doing that in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And we also should make a plan to approach God and, and approach spiritual things early in the day to make a plan for our day, as well as for our week and for our life. Uh, my good friend Chris Emerson, his podcast, Excel Still More, he makes a, a big point and And probably, if you're not watching or listening to uh, Excel Still More, you really ought to. It's amazing. One of the episodes, he emphasized the idea of, of a, a quality hour. And he comes back to this one good hour at the beginning of the day, where you use to plan out your day, to get in your prayers, to get in your Bible study, meditation, or exercise, or whatever it happens to be, that gets you on focus, that sets you up for success the rest of the day. How, And you don't have to do it at the beginning of the day, but how much better is it when you do, when you are able to have it in the, in the beginning of the day, so that you can focus on spiritual things and remind yourself of what you're doing. Set yourself up for success. This is what I'm going to be praying for today. This is what I'm going to be living for today. This is what I'm going to be struggling with today. These are the the successes that I'm planning for myself the failures that I'm trying to avoid it's entirely appropriate then to make those early plans and to make them firm make them concrete set them as much as you can anyway in in stone now we realize that again we don't have complete control over such things but make a plan that's worth sticking to don't just arbitrarily i'm gonna I'm gonna read my Bible for for two hours a day every day starting today and and but you don't have any real commitment toward that. You don't have any plan for for doing that. You haven't gotten things out of the way so that you can fill this huge void with spiritual things. Maybe it's a great plan, but you're not prepared to do it. You're not prepared to actually follow through with that. Make a firm plan, something that you can really follow through with, to pray regularly, to read your Bible regularly, to arm yourself against spiritual evils that are out there in the world. Make those firm plans. And as much as you can, anyway, I would suggest to you that you should make them public. When you tell somebody, I'm not talking about taking it out an ad in the newspaper necessarily, but rather to, to tell people to be accountable to to your wife or your husband, to your children, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe one particular prayer partner. We sometimes talk about having prayer partners or confession partners. Having somebody that you're accountable to. When I tell people on my Facebook page that I'm going to be live at 8 o'clock on a Friday morning suddenly I've made myself accountable to hundreds of people now if I don't if I'm not able to follow through with that I think people will probably understand that and and, and I can apologize later on and get back on the schedule or adjust the schedule if that's necessary for, if that's appropriate but by making myself accountable to other people I'm much more likely to follow through with the plan that I've set if people are expecting a, a podcast to drop at seven o'clock in the morning on Tuesday I better spend a very busy Monday like this very busy Monday, getting that plan together, getting it ready to go. It's much easier when we hold ourselves accountable by allowing other people to hold us accountable as well. The example that you're going to set is going to be seen by people. The good example you're going to be, is going to be seen. The bad example is going to be seen. The neutral example is going to be seen. Why not make a plan for your life so that you can present that good example? So that you can be what God wants you to be, so that you can be seen glorifying God. That people can see the salt that you're putting in the earth, the difference that you're making for the Lord. Not in such a way as to glorify yourself, but to glorify Him. Allow glory to be brought to Him and to His cause. You're not going to be able to do that by accident. That's just too big of a life plan to assume it's going to just fall into place automatically. You know, they always say that if you're not, you're not you know, If you're failing to plan, you're you're planning to fail. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So set aside a little bit of time, maybe today, maybe tomorrow morning, to to plan for your spiritual success, plan for your day, plan for your week, plan for your life so that you can put wheels in motion so that you can actually get to where you want to be, where God wants you to be. And you can glorify him in that place and you can glorify him along the way to that place. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Why are you doing this to me? How many times have we heard ourselves saying that to God, or at least in our head, maybe not actually verbally or in our prayers, but we wanted to say it. We knew we probably didn't actually say it, right? because we we know better we know that god loves us we know that god's taking care of us we know intellectually that these things are going to work out for our benefit but it doesn't really seem like it's doing that right we do, does not really seem like god does care about us or about our suffering about our our lot in life we are giving ourselves entirely to him and it doesn't seem to be paying off for us at all it seems like the the more we enmesh ourselves in in the life of faith the, the more consequences there are for us, negative consequences. Why does God allow these things to happen? And, and you might parse words a little bit. You may say, well, it's not so much that God is doing it to us, it's that God is allowing uh, these things to happen to us and, and give the credit to Satan or, or the world or whatever. That does not seem to have given Heman the Israelite any kind of comfort or solace when he was writing down Psalm 88. He gives God all the credit for the woes and troubles in this life. And and let's be honest, God could stop these things if he wanted to. And lots of times he does. It's within his power. All these things are. That's why we pray, because we trust that God can and oftentimes does inject himself into the affairs of men, into our own personal affairs for our benefit, for our our short-term comfort. And he's not doing that. At least maybe he's not in your life. I'm sure there have been times in your life when you were suffering and you've asked for help, you asked for the removal of the thorn in the flesh, and God did not grant you that request. Why is that? Why is it the case that God continues to allow these, these horrible things to happen to good people? Psalm 88 has been described as the saddest of all of the psalms, perhaps even the saddest chapter in the Bible, because unlike many of the psalms that... Enlist the the help of God in times of difficulty and hardship. And there are many of them. Psalm eight contains no reference to God's answer, no indication that God is in fact coming to the rescue, or any expectation that He is going to come to the rescue in times past or in in the future. Lots of times, in the Psalms, you'll have half the psalm devoted to our complaints, and then the other half that God has already answered our prayer. God has already come to our rescue, and and those are wonderful psalms to read. They're not always like that. Sometimes. Nine-tenths of the psalm is given over to our complaints, and then just a little bit given over to God's response or an expectation of God's response. Psalm 88 is unique in that there is no response at all. It's just how miserable our life is. Why are you doing this to me? And, And I don't have a complete answer to the problems in your life. I'm sure you have problems. I certainly have problems. And we do not know the mind of God. We only have a limited access to God's thought patterns and why he would do such things in a general sort of sense. Certainly, we have no indication of why specifically he is doing what he is doing or allowing to be done what is being done. But there are some generalities that are given to us in the text that might give us some indication of what's going on. I'd like to share some of these things with you, and you can look at your own issues in life and, and perhaps see the hand of God in some fashion and perhaps take some kind of comfort or some kind of direction because of that. One thing that may be going on here, and we may not like to hear this, but it's certainly, there's all kinds of precedent in the Bible. God may be punishing you. That's the simple explanation. And it's very frequently exactly what is going on in the lives of the people in the Bible. They did bad things and God punished them. It's it's just absolutely that simple. And if God did it to the Israelites in the wilderness, and he did it to the Israelites in the land of Canaan, and took them into captivity, and, and on and on, go with one example after another, isn't it possible that he's doing exactly the same thing for us to a certain degree? I believe he is doing that. Romans chapter thirteen verses one through four indicates that government serves that role that government punishes evil and is here for that purpose, so that evil will be punished in this life the government's not perfect by any means in accomplishing that goal, and they certainly don't tend to honor God while they're doing that, but that's why they're here, and God props up the government for that purpose. I'm not suggesting that if you're suffering, it's because you have done something wrong and this is the hand of God afflicting you because of that. But if suffering can be used as an opportunity to repent of sin and turn back to God, then by all means, take that opportunity. Nothing wrong with that at all. There may be a test going on. Maybe God is testing you. And certainly he's done that many, many times. Life is a test to a large degree. We're supposed to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith on an ongoing basis. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4 tells us that. Verse 5 tells us that Abraham was tested in Genesis chapter 22 and passed. He was willing to give his son, his only son, whom he loved. And after having passed the test, God said, now I know. I hope that your test doesn't involve something quite that dramatic, but there will be tests. Maybe you'll pass like Job passed. In Job 42 verses 1 through 7, uh, God uh, condemns Job for his attitude and for his uh, eagerness to question God and God's wisdom, but nevertheless comes back to the basic point. That Job's friends had denied God, had spoken poorly of God, not like my servant Job has. Job did right. He could have done better. Maybe that's the way we're being tested. Maybe you are tested and you fail. There are examples of that too. The young prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13, who was told to go and prophesy to Jeroboam and then leave and go back home to Judah and to not stop on the way, to not eat, not drink. And then he was convinced by this older prophet to break his vow. And he was killed for it. This was a test. And he failed the test. And he paid the ultimate penalty in the flesh for that. Sometimes we pass. Sometimes we fail. Hopefully, and and most of the times I think this is the case, when we fail these tests, it is an opportunity for us to grow. It is an opportunity for us us to work harder. Like Peter was about to fail his test in uh, that last night before uh, the night of Jesus' betrayal, before his crucifixion, Jesus knew that Peter was about to fail miserably. But he said, you can, you can recover from this. Satan's going to sift you like wheat. But when you come through it, he says, strengthen your brethren. We can do that too. Maybe there's a teaching moment here. There are all kinds of lessons that God tries to teach us in the flesh. Uh, some of them more obvious than others. And, and some of them may be relevant with regard to your suffering, your situation. God tries to teach us about mistakes and consequences, for instance. That's maybe the most obvious thing. You make a mistake, you suffer the consequences. That is built into the framework of life here on earth. God wants us to learn this lesson. Our reaction as individuals and and I as a parent especially can appreciate this. And I'm sure if you're a parent, you can appreciate this too. Lots of times we want to remove the consequences from the mistakes. Shelter our children from especially life-altering consequences. And maybe that's appropriate in some situations. But not all situations. God wants us to know that mistakes come with a penalty so that we'll make fewer mistakes in the the future. Psalm 78 is, is all about these mistakes that the people of God made and refused to learn from, leading all the way up to the coronation of David as the king. Hopefully, we can learn from these mistakes and do better in the future than we have in the past. The inequity of life. Life's not fair, right? How many times have we told, been told that? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, And following, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. It is a grievous task, which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. That's the world we live in. It's not fair. It's not right. But that's the way it is. Maybe we need to be reminded about that. Maybe it's a training exercise. Maybe God is trying to get us to a different place. We're going through the refiner's fire that Zechariah talks about, Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. It's not a pleasant process. It's like physical therapy. That's the way it's described in Hebrews chapter 12, that putting these these broken limbs back into, into place and, and strengthening the, the needs. It's, it's a difficult thing. It's an arduous thing, a painful thing. But maybe this is what we need to do. Maybe this is the lesson God has for us. Maybe this is why we're suffering. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Well, I guess I missed my chance to watch Game of Thrones. I suppose I'll just have to live with that. Seems like this week, all anybody is talking about is uh, Game of Thrones is finished. Did you like the finale? Did you not like the finale? And and George R.R. R. Martin should have uh, written faster, and, and the, the writers lost their way, and blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. Uh, the bottom line is Game of Thrones is a, a series on HBO that a lot of people are very, very excited about. And I'm going to preface my remarks by saying something here that may... Uh, strike some people as as odd or even heretical here, but but I want you to listen to me on this. Over the next five, six minutes or so, you're not going to hear me say that if you have been watching Game of Thrones over the last eight years, you're going to go to hell. I'm not going to say that. Uh, Heaven and hell is God's business, and and I am more than content to leave it at that. Uh, I can't find any thou shalt not watch HBO passages in the New Testament. And so therefore, I'm not going to tell people they're going to go to hell for watching HBO. There are any number of practical principles, moral principles that uh, come up in the conversation when we're discussing Game of Thrones, things like like modesty and fornication and and lewdness and vulgarity and, and on and on we could go. And there is no question that we are going to be held accountable for the way that we apply those principles. And there's no question that God is going to be the one who is in charge of judging our application. So we'll we'll leave it at that. But I will say this. At some point, we as Christians, in our dealings with these practical applications of life in Satan's world, we have to acknowledge that there are a couple of unavoidable issues that we need to deal with. There are a couple of, of generalizations that have to be dealt with on an ongoing basis in all, all kinds of situations, not just Game of Thrones. Living in Jesus is going to involve turning away from sin, and not just avoiding the kind of ugliness that you see on TV or or whatever, but being seen as an opposition to that, as an as an alternative to that. Ephesians chapter five and verse number eleven tells us that we are supposed to not be participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reproving them. It's not enough to not jump into. the the cesspool head first, but we should advise others, this is a wrong way to live your life. We need to make sure that we stand apart from such things. And we need to, secondly, acknowledge that at some point in our process, in our attempts to practicalize these principles of the New Testament, we are going to have to draw a line. We're going to have to acknowledge that at some point we have gone too far and we have to retrench. And and hopefully we can draw a, a concrete, I refuse to watch R-rated movies, or I refuse to, to subscribe to something that has, has a certain kind of content or whatever it happens to be. But you can draw a, a concrete line there and say, I'm not going to cross that line. This far I'll go, but no further. And then we can have a discussion about where that line should be and whether that line is the same place for every person and, and every family and that sort of thing. You draw your own line and I'll draw mine. But we need to draw the line. We need to acknowledge that at some point we've gone too far. So let's talk about that for a little bit. At what point have we gone too far? At what point have we crossed the line? Well, let me give you a couple of, of generalizations and, and see what you think of this. I would suggest to you, first of all, that we have gone too far. We've crossed the line when we start looking like the world instead of looking like Jesus. Now, that is very broad generalization, and I'm not suggesting here that somehow you can get to where you are entirely like Jesus and not at all like the world. That's that's an, an ideal. That's what we're striving for. We're not going to say success can't be declared if we never get to that stage because it will never be successful. That, that's not the point at all. But how do people view us? Do they see us as one of them, or do they see us as one of them? Are we Jesus people? Or are we the world's people, but maybe not quite so bad, maybe not quite so entrenched, maybe not so, so vulgar as, uh, as they are, but still more or less one of the group. We need to make sure that we set a distinction between ourselves and others and acknowledge that this kind of participation does happen, that the evil companionships that we have in this world do, in fact, ultimately corrupt our good manners, as the text says in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. It does happen. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you watch Game of Thrones, you're going to wind up sleeping with your brother or your sister, or that you're going to uh, wind up engaging in all kinds of vulgarity and and blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that. I am saying that if we subject ourselves constantly to a a diet of vulgarity, uh, where a, a culture where deception and ugliness is valued and promoted and rewarded that at some point we should expect that to start having ripple effects on our own character and certainly on our own reputation in the minds of other people. Secondly, let me suggest to you that maybe we've crossed the line when we find ourselves taking sides against Jesus and in favor of the world. And this comes up a lot when I think largely well-meaning, but sometimes maybe just old-fashioned nosy. Christians insert themselves into this discussion, whether it's Game of Thrones or or whatever other kind of specific thing you want to talk about, and say, oh, if you watch that show, then you're not a very good Christian. If you watch that show, then you don't love the Lord. If you love that show, then you're just immersing yourself in, in evil and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe they'll actually use the H word. It's very easy for people who are caught up in this kind of behavior, and I'm not saying sinful behavior, I'm just saying behavior at this point, to become very defensive. They have fallen in love with Game of Thrones, or they've fallen in love with Lucifer, or they've fallen in love with whatever other kind of of entertainment. Lots of times it's entertainment. And they want to keep watching these shows. They want to keep listening to this music. They want to keep enjoying this fruit of the world. And they want to separate, at least in their own mind, themselves, from the moral implications of this kind of entertainment. And so instead of correcting themselves, they will lash out at their Christian brethren. They'll say, oh, you're just trying to rule my life. You're just trying to boss me around. You're trying to, to you're the, the no fun, you're, you're the problem. People like you were saying, Christians can't ever have any fun. And in so doing, essentially, for practical purposes, line up with the world against Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians are never overly intrusive, that they are never overly bossy, and there aren't legalistic, judgmental Christians out there who are saying, if you don't do things the way I do them, that means you don't love the Lord. I'm sure there are Christians like that. I've known Christians like that. Maybe I've been a Christian like that at some point in the past. We're not making apologies for people like that. We are saying, however, there is good and evil in the world. There are those that are fighting for the Lord and those that are fighting for the devil. And which one do we look more like? Yes, we can absolutely correct the problems that are on our side of the aisle. No question about that. But let's not be so rigid in our opposition to what we see as extremism on Jesus' side that we look very much like the people who are going to hell as fast as they possibly can with booster rockets behind and proud of doing it. We don't want to look like that. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be identified in that way. We need to be pure in our thoughts, pure in our behaviors, as much as we possibly can. And that means loving our brethren when they want to involve themselves in our lives, when they want to help correct us, when we look like we may be heading in the wrong direction. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. We don't want to get in that situation. We don't want to be so hardened, so so dogmatic in our... Call it questionable behavior. That we lash out against people who ultimately, in the end, are trying to save our souls. Yes, let's try not to be overly dogmatic about our own personal applications of God's principles. But while we are being corrected, let's remember that people are doing this out of love. That people care genuinely about us. that want us to go to heaven instead of hell. And maybe taking a step back from sinful behavior, sinful influences... Maybe that's not just a bad thing. Maybe a little bit less of the world in our life can be a good thing. And maybe instead of blaming our brethren for helping us take that step back, maybe we should be thanking them instead. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But... If you stick around for a few more minutes i would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in satan's world and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process this is what i've been playing the voyages of a marco polo is a considerably more complicated and uh, in-depth game than most of the ones that i'm going to be referring to in this space if you are a beginner if you're looking for something to share with your, your eight, nine-year-old children or whatever, uh, just a step up from checkers, uh, I would not recommend Voyage's Marco Polo. If you are an experienced gamer, if you have uh, played a lot of uh, heavy strategy games and you haven't tried Voyage's Marco Polo, I'd encourage you to give it a shot. It's, it's really amazing. It's a great example of what they call asymmetry. Uh, by asymmetry, I mean this. When you're playing a game, if you're new to the hobby, You probably assume that if you have four people at the table and uh, everybody's going to start, they're going to start from the same place, that uh, everybody has the same amount of money, everybody has the same ability, everybody has the same opportunity, same number of turns, that sort of thing. Everybody's going to start on on level ground, and therefore you can determine uh, a fair winner. Well, you open up Marco Polo, and you find out that the player over next to you doesn't have to roll his dice. And you think, now, wait a minute. Marco Polo is all about dice rolling. It's all about the roll of the dice and then using those dice in some capacity somewhere. And if they're good numbers then you get a lot, or if they're small numbers then you don't have to pay very much or whatever, it, it may be best for you to have this kind of number of this kind of, maybe all the same, maybe all different. And, and you realize that the, the fellow over on your right, if he wants five sixes, he takes five sixes. If he wants five ones, he takes five ones. If he wants a one, two, three, four, five, he gives himself one, two, three, four, five. And you think, how in the world is this fair? I have to literally depend on the roll of the dice, and he doesn't. And then you look at this other person to your left, and you find out that person gets goods at the market when other people go to the market. He has this continual flow of stuff when it's not even his turn. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on with this? And then you find out that you yourself, you don't have one player, you have two players. Instead of going in one direction and trying to go all the way around the board or around the map in, in different, you can go in two different directions at the same time and co- cover that much more ground. Nobody else can do that. And you start thinking, this is this is kind of, and, and then the question comes up, which one's better? Which one is overpowered? And it always seems to be, doesn't it, that the other person's power is better than yours. I, I've, I've wondered maybe if superheroes ever got jealous. If we actually had superheroes, they sit around the table of the Justice League or the Avengers or whatever and say, boy, I wish I was strong like camera. I wish I was fast like her. or I wish whatever. Which superpower is better? Well, the idea in Marco Polo, of course, is that they're all more or less the same. And if you tailor your game to your ability you're able to put yourself in position to win, no matter what anybody else does with their power, whatever their other power happens to be. Asymmetry is a a really interesting way to add life to the game. It's overall, I think, a a very good thing. I I enjoy asymmetry in board games, and I enjoy asymmetry in the Lord's Church as well. And if you know very much about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you figured I was probably going to wind up here eventually, because we, as the people of God, are called a body. And 1 Corinthians 12 especially describes ourselves as members in that body, different members in that body. Verse number 14, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, especially verse 18, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Bear down on that thought for a second. Just as he desired. If God wanted us to all be alike, we would all be alike. Doesn't that make sense? The fact that we are not all alike, the fact that we do excel in different areas, is part of God's plan. He wants us to differ because by bringing different skills, different opportunities, different experiences to the table, We flesh out the body, and it becomes more than simply hearing or simply seeing or whatever. We can do all things pretending to our walk with Christ. personally, I can't imagine how horrible it would be if you had a church of 100 members and they were all gospel preachers. And I don't say that to disparage preachers. Every preacher out there listening to me knows exactly what I'm talking about. That would be a nightmare. Bring out the worst in all of us. Thankfully, we don't have to deal with that. Thankfully, we have people who are good at this and good at that. And it's always tempting to look at somebody else's power, somebody else's strength, and see that as preferable. I wish I were where he is. I wish I were where she is instead of where I am. And that does not serve any purpose especially in the context of First Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14, as he's talking about the application of spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit was moving among certain Christians in the first century in a very special way, moving some to be apostles, or some to be prophets, some to be teachers, some in other ways, some more public than others. In, in Corinth, apparently, they had a real obsession with, with uh, speaking in tongues. But maybe it would be something else somewhere else. Whatever it happens to be, though, they wanted that gift. They wanted to be able to vaunt themselves. And they, saw, they did not see the powers, the abilities, the opportunities that were given to them as a way to serve the church. They were merely looking at serving themselves. What we need to do as the body of Christ is rejoice in our differentiation, in our, in our distinction, our asymmetry. That's a good thing. Because I'm able to do what somebody else might not be able to do. They're able to do what I might not do. That doesn't make me better than them or them better than me. That makes us family. That makes us brethren. Parts of the body. Different parts. But no less important. No less significant. And here's the the twisted line to all of this. No matter what your ability is or is not. No matter how content you are or are not in that ability. We have this, this wonderful subtext here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you know about chapter 13, right? The love chapter. Love does this and love does that. And what he's trying to say here is that your application of love in the context of the Lord's church, especially in a general sense, yes, but especially in the Lord's church, your loving of your brothers and sisters in Christ does more good than you can possibly imagine. It is the most powerful thing there is. It is the most useful tool. It is the strongest defense. It is the strongest offense. It accomplishes wonderful, marvelous things for the Lord. And here's the thing. Anybody can do it. You don't need to have a special, you don't need years of training. It doesn't matter whether you're a toe or an arm or an ear or an eye. It doesn't matter. Anybody can love his or her brethren. You can be just as strong a warrior for Jesus Christ in your love as anybody else. Isn't that empowering? To know that you can be a force for good. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of the body, but for the sake of the head. You can be just as loving as anybody else. You can be just as important as anybody else. So instead of envying somebody else their position, envying somebody else their opportunities, their blessings, instead rejoice where you are with whatever you have or do not have, as the case may be. Maybe you don't have a family, you'd like to have a family. Maybe you don't have a, a public role, you'd like to have a public role. Whatever it happens to be, instead of envying, instead of jealousy, find a way to serve God where you are. I'm not suggesting you can't grow in your abilities or grow in your roles, but wherever you happen to be at any given time, find a way to glorify God where you are. And you can do that better than any other way by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. What a marvelous gift that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, you can be a winner in this game. You can accomplish great and marvelous things. If only you give yourself over to God and allow Him to have His way with you, bring you into this state of love, the state of, of caring, of service, that will be a blessing not only to you and your family, but to the church as a whole and to the work of Jesus Christ in your community. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast, and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook, Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 pages a week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.